Welcome to the Bulwark Podcast. I'm Charlie Sykes. It's Thursday, so just a quick note uh, that we have our Thursday night Bulwark Plus exclusive live streams. If you want to see the whole gang get together and talk about the uh, the news of the day, uh, Joe Biden will be having his first presser, and uh, we we know how that's going to go. I mean, we we know what the spin is going to be. I I can I can write the Ben Shapiro tweets before it even takes place. But anyway, that will be tonight at eight o'clock Eastern Time, seven o'clock Central Time. I mentioned that because, of course, I am Central Time. Uh, also, a reminder that it, that you can watch that live stream if you sign up for Bulwark Plus. And, and if you sign up for Bulwark Plus, you'd have access to uh, some of our newsletters, including uh, JVL's Daily Triad, uh, My Morning Shots. And My Morning Shots basically is it's 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 about I would say it's about 60 percent serious, 40 percent heavy snark. Uh, about guns and I make the modest proposal because I've become so deeply cynical about whether or not Congress is going to do anything, enact any common sense gun legislation. So my modest proposal is, is it too much to ask that we stop uh, fetishizing guns, that maybe politicians should find a different phallic substitute for the moment? Maybe Ted Cruz should uh, have a moratorium on the on the use of uh, the AR-15 machine gun or or machine guns as cod pieces, uh, you know, Ted Cruz famously wanted to show that he was like one of the guys by cooking bacon on a machine gun because that was so smart. And of course, we know that Don Jr. has taken to uh, to posing with uh, guns behind him, and it's not just a guy thing. I get that. I, I understand. I mean, the, you got the Lauren Boberts and the Marjorie Taylor Greens, but this whole the you know. I'm going to show you my really big gun and the cosplay and the dressing up. Uh, perhaps just as a modest suggestion, this is not really advancing Second Amendment rights or respect for responsible gun ownership. If you want to be taken seriously, maybe uh, ought not to act like a bunch of fucking idiots. Uh, so, OK, so we got the explicit rating before I even introduce Tom Nichols, who comes back to <laughs> the podcast. And welcome back, Tom. Hey, Charlie. Great to be back. Well, let's see what, how you feel at the end of this, because, you know, we've been having a little bit of a discussion, a little bit of discussion on the Bulwark staff uh, between the dog owners on the Bulwark staff and the cat fanciers. Yeah. <clears throat> now, it's one thing for us to go back and forth, but you have parachuted into our fight. It was like those guys are fighting over there and you parachute in and amazingly as an advocate for cats and and very specifically you know i want to address this the the comment that i made um who did i actually say this to i was on with was on one of the podcasts and uh we were talking about the difference between dogs and cats and, and the the obvious inherent superiority of of dogs okay no no there no, it no, is. no 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 i i need to, i need to back up a little bit see i didn't start this 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 came out of nowhere. This came out of JVL and Sarah Longwell just totally gratuitously said they don't like dog people. And uh, Sarah thought that she was really annoyed by dog people who tried to get this humanize themselves by posting pictures of dogs, to which my <laughs> response was, well, you know, maybe they, they were humanizing themselves because they're actually humans. So this like, you know, you know, guilty. To humanize, but it, of course it, it it immediately degenerated into you know dogs versus cats, and and I did point out that 
one of the advantages of dogs is that, you know, do- dogs are the ones who, you know, they, they serve in the military. They, they, they arrest people. They're, there's their canine units for police departments. Uh, dogs jump out of, uh, jump out of, uh, planes. Uh, they, they, they sniff for bombs. Uh, and I, I did say there are no hero cats. And boy, did I open up a can of whoop ass on myself because apparently you opened up a giant can of little friskies all over yourself there. Exactly. Well, I understand that there's this need for the urban legend about the hero cat because there's a video out there. There's one YouTube video of a cat that actually does something. And it's like, see, cats are okay. So, you know, out of the hundred million cats in the world, how many cats are there? I mean, you know, a billion cats in the world, most of whom are basically saying, fuck your feelings all the time. There's a one cat that jumps no, out of the- think they're saying, Charlie. That's, <laughs> dog people are so insecure about cats. You know, they're, I don't want to draw too close a comparison to MAGA world, but, you know, they're oh, always oh. thinking about what cat people think about them. And the thing is, you know, cats and cat people, we're not thinking about you at all. That's the thing. Cats just are- See? That's what I'm they saying. They keep their thoughts to themselves. They, yeah, they are not the, judging you, Charlie. That's right. They're they're just over there. I mean, and then there's a reason why. For example, you know, Doctor Evil is portrayed not as a dog person. Doctor Evil has a cat, right? I mean, you think that's a coincidence? <laughs> well, I mean, you know, but, what is you it? Know, the cat owners tend to correlate with high intelligence, so it's you know okay. But I, I get I get to give you the shot here because you are one of these. You know, people who believe that there are hero cats. And by the way, I, I, I have I, one. I, I have I have owned up to it that there are hero cats. Okay. And you actually have a story about a hero yes. cat. And and you know, let me I'll stipulate dogs are great working animals. I mean, cats are working animals if you put them in a barn and tell them to keep the mice out of the grain. I my cat is a great mouser. But um no, my cat woke me up. Um I had a house fire three years ago, and the cat uncharacteristically started, you know, came up at six o'clock in the morning, six 30 and started walking on our faces. And we thought, geez, that's unusual. You know, that they, that, you know, cause usually cats do that, wake up, feed me kind of stuff. And, um, no matter what we did, we threw her off the bed. We, you know, finally my wife got up and said, all right, fine. Went downstairs and said, uh, I smell smoke. And, um, you know, the cat boxes and her kind of hangout place are down in the cellar. And I said, oh, maybe there's something in the cellar. And there was flame shooting out of the cellar Ooh. ceiling. Uh, and the cat, uncharacteristically, again, cats, you know, they usually come downstairs and they wait for their bowl of food and all that. The cat knew something was up. She stayed right on the bed where we could see her huh. um, upstairs. My, I said, get the cat. cat said, okay, see, I told you something was up. You know, we called 911. And the fire guys said, uh, you know, if you had stayed in bed a little longer, you'd have lost the house. It would have broken through the floor. And so the cat knew something was up and said, come on, get out of bed and I'll wait here for you. Um, also interesting that cat owners will tell you cats are particularly a problem in fires uh, because they hide. Right. Yes. And this cat did not. She stood right out there and said, um, you're not going to have to look for me. I'm waiting for you. You go fix this. And then um, <laughs> my wife and the cat spent the rest of the morning in the car. It, we, it was during one of the coldest cold snaps of that winter and so um the cat and uh my wife sat out in the car with the engine running staying warm while the firefighters came in and you know sprayed everything down well, so i cat- have i have to, yeah, i have to concede the point here i mean really i mean this is this is this is a heroic cat story she was a good within- she was a good girl okay so, yeah. yeah 
Um, she's a, she's a good, I grant you that there are cats who are, shall we say, difficult. Well, um, but I, so you, you, you reject the possibility that there's a fire and your cat figures this is a great opportunity for me to kill them in their sleep by stepping on their faces. <laughs> okay, I mean, that didn't happen, right? I'm just Every, like, everybody's I'm, so afraid of cats killing you in, in your sleep. And, you know, I'm sorry, but, uh, you know, you don't have a lot of, um, you don't have a lot of questions. cat murders. And I'm going I'm to use the Sidney Powell defense that no reasonable person would think that I was seriously <laughs> suggesting that Tom Nichols' cat was thinking, here's an opportunity to murder them in their sleep. No reasonable person. No, I am just no asking questions. Person. This is my First Amendment right I to be able to express no cats. The Sidney Powell story, I, I know it's been like we're on day three of it, but it 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 feels like. We and David French made this point when I had him on the other day. That this just has not gotten enough airtime on the conservative no. media. It hasn't really penetrated that that the the, the president's conspiracy theorist in chief is basically admitting it was complete bullshit. And like you people didn't actually you weren't you weren't you know such suckers that you actually believed me. I mean, it is this perfect bow on on this on the on the on the big lie. But the reality is, lots of people did believe her, and they still believe her. Yeah, that's why it's not getting, I think, um, you know, David's right. It's not getting enough airtime, but that's why it's not getting enough airtime. Yeah. Uh, because, you know, what what's what are all of our, you know, former friends in the conservative media going to say that, you know, they're they're stuck with her. And, and David laid this out in a nice little you know tweet thread the other night where he said, so basically you either have to admit that you were pumping the lie with them or that you were completely hoodwinked and that you're stupid. I mean, you know, so it always comes as it so often does in Trump world, it comes down to, are you evil or are you stupid? Yeah. Um, because you've not got mutually exclusive. No, no, yeah, no, 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 no. Not necessarily mutually exclusive. I mean, there's, there's Dan Bongino. Okay. I mean, fair enough. Okay. I mean, and Tucker, Carl, they, Tucker Carlson's not stupid, but he, you know, so there's right, a lot of and things. They, and for, for the rest of them, they had to pick. It's like, did, did you know she was lying or are you too stupid to know she was lying and taking you in? And the people, as you say, the people, I mean, this really proves the durability of the mindset of the, of the conspiracy theory, seditionist, anti-constitutionalist movement within the GOP. Powell comes right out and says, this was all bullshit. I was making it up. This is nonsense. No reasonable person could believe it. And they're already all kind of winking at each other like, yeah, but it, you know, but it is true, sort of, right? It's true enough. And I mean, it's, it's, it's pathetic. I mean, it's really sad to watch. So, so, so I want to dive into uh, something in just a moment, something that came out of the Claremont Institute that I wanted to bounce off of you, you know, but before we do that, there's just two stories that I kind of my 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 favorite my favorite Schadenfreude stories of the day. Uh, you know, number one involving you know the the Cuomo um, the Cuomo brothers. Uh, we're now finding out. I mean, Andrew Cuomo turns out to be even more deplorable than we could have possibly imagined. But now it turns out that that he and and Chris Cuomo from CNN um, jumped the line in every conceivable way with the coronavirus, whatever. Um, so that 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 continues to to play out. My favorite story, though, and this is a little probably a little bit obscure for some folks. It's it's the story about the Christy Nome, who is the governor of uh, South Dakota, who 
apparently would not immediately sign this bill that would ban biological males from participating in women's sports, you know, a transgender, uh, transgender rights issue that's become a really big issue. And by the way, there's, there's an interesting, there's a legitimate debate back and forth between whether, you know, guys who identify as women should be able to compete against girls in sports. I'm leaving that aside. So the legislature passes this ban. Christy Nome, who has become this conservative icon, refuses to sign it. And the right has gone out of its mind. And yesterday, the spokesman for Christy Nome criticized, and this is her term, conservative cancel culture for this. She said, in the past year, Nome was the only governor in the entire nation to never order a single business or church in her state to close. Great. The left bullied her incessantly, but she didn't cave, spokesman somebody or other said in a statement. But if any number of conservative pundits are to be to believe, that same governor who refused to cave is now caving to the NCAA and Amazon on the issue of fairness in women's sports. What? Apparently uninformed cancel culture is fine when the right is eating their own. Well, mm-hmm. this is an interesting moment. Hmm. And, and the reference to Amazon is they're afraid that if she signs this bill, Amazon might not bring a distribution center to South Dakota and the NCAA might challenge them in court and everything. But interesting. Conservative yeah. cancel culture, eating their own. And this is this is why I, I actually worry less about things like cancel culture and, and um, wokeness than some of our other uh, pals on the right, because you know, maybe it was years of studying the Soviet Union and its, you know, ideological cancel culture, cancel culture, which we called purge trials. <laughs> uh, but sooner or later, every revolution, whether of the right or the left, eats itself um, because the people who gain power in a revolution or who feel powerful in a revolution eventually start turning on each other. And the accusers, in the end, all you have are the accusers and the accused. And eventually it burns itself out. And you're seeing this, um, you know, the Christy Nome story comes right on the heels of the Lexi McCammon story, Mm -hmm. where one of her accusers ended up being accused. And, you know, this is what happens in these situations, that they take on a life that the the dynamics, the, the momentum takes on a life of its own. And pretty soon everyone who isn't pure enough at that moment ends up being accused. I mean, there isn't a big enough glass to hold the schadenfreude for somebody like Christy Nome, you know, having to fight off the right wing. I mean, this is, you know, this is. Well, conservative cancel culture is a very real thing. It's just ironic that now, now, finally, at long last, she's recognizing it. I don't know whether it's going to derail her, but uh, this has been a big issue on, on on Fox News and that alternative reality. And I mean, she was the darling up until five minutes ago, and now and now, you know, it's it's sort of a reminder that you know you you know in this in this day and age, you know, if you're ninety nine point nine percent pure, they're going to get you for the that's not enough. No, it's like you got to you're going to drink the the maga Kool Aid. You got to drink every freaking drop of it. Okay, speaking well, and, of which, yeah, go on. And, and what constitutes purity? And this, again, I'm going to splash this over both the right and the left. What constitutes purity changes every day. Right. Yeah, because you have to keep upping the ante. It's like, you know, it's like being right. a drug drug addict. You need you you need a bigger and bigger dose. And well, of course, because you have to keep people uh, on on their on edge, on the toes. You have to keep them outraged. So you have to find new things to be outraged about. And after a while, you kind of run out of fuel of being outraged about the left. So you have to become outraged about people who are insufficiently outraged on the right. 
that actually made sense, believe it or not. It, it does. And you're, and you're slicing the pie narrower and right, narrower right. and narrower to try to find your particular niche where you stand alone as the ultimate arbiter of, you know, who should speak for the, um, you know, Christian, decent, anti-trans bathroom, South Dakotan, Black Hills, yada, yada, yada movement, you know, just as on the left, um, you know, to keep adding letters uh, to your your person, to how you identify yourself, because yeah. again, you are staking out narrower and narrower claims of power against other people. It's got to be and very it, frustrating for, for Christy Nome though, because she's basically saying, her spokesman saying, look, do you see how many people we were willing to kill here in South Dakota <laughs> <laughs> to stay on the right side of MAGA? I mean, we didn't shut down anything. We have one of the worst death rates in the entire country. Okay. So do we get any credit for that? But you know, it's one thing to have lots of people in South Dakota die of the coronavirus because she won't shut the, something down. But if you might not get those Amazon jobs, now we're talking serious stuff. Well, so, that's the other thing, isn't it? Once it's all fun and games until a, a whole bunch of jobs and money, uh, you know, and of course, um, the more paranoid um, fringes on the right are like, see, this is why, you know, this is actually how conservatives become anti-capitalist. They're like, well, see, these giant capitalist organizations need to be smashed because they've become our new overlords and masters. And, you know, again, the usual, the, the, the new and I, I think this kind of heads to where we were going with this bizarre piece you were going to bring up. Mm -hmm. But, you know, it's like, well, wasn't life just better when we were all, you know, small farmers and shopkeepers? Um, right. Which, but of course, we go back to that. Know, never really a time in modern history. Yes. Everything's been downhill since, you know, 1790 or whatever. OK, so <laughs> the, the, this is one of those I am old enough to remember. Stories, okay. I think you are too. I am old enough to remember when the Claremont Institute was really a you know a mainstream, highly highly respected uh, intellectual center of the conservative movement. Would you agree? Oh, absolutely. They have evolved over the last several years into becoming um, not just MAGA, but now they're almost like what is it, MAGA plus? And this, this goes to your point about how the revolution eats its own because, uh, you know, th they started moving in that direction and they just haven't stopped. So the, the, the piece I wanted to talk to you about is in the American mind, which is a publication of the Claremont Institute. And the, the headline is why the Claremont Institute is not conservative, the word conservative in quotes, and you shouldn't be either. So it's, it, it's kind of a repudiation of conservatism because conservatism is not right wing enough. They want it to be revolutionary. And the, the only way that I can capture this is to read you the first three paragraphs, if you can bear with me here. And this is written by um, some, uh, some guy named Glenn Elmers, who I don't know who he is, but he's speaking for the, the Institute now. Let's be blunt, he writes. The United States has become two nations occupying the same country. When pressed or in private, many would now agree. When pressed or in private, many admit as much. Few are willing to take the next step and accept that most people living in the United States today, certainly more than half, are not Americans in any meaningful sense of the term. Whoa, Casey, okay, we're going here. I don't just mean millions of illegal immigrants. Obvious those foreigners who have bypassed the regular process for entering the country and probably will never assimilate to our language and culture are politically as well as legally aliens. 
I'm really referring to the many native-born people, some of whose families have been here since the Mayflower, who may technically be citizens of the United States, uh, United States, but are no longer, if they ever were, Americans. They do not believe in, live by, or even like the principles, traditions, and ideas that until recently defined America as a nation and as a people. It is not obvious what we should call these citizen aliens, these non-American Americans, but they are something else. Okay, spoiler alert here. What he's talking about is that anybody that did not vote for Donald Trump is not really an American. And, and, I'm, and I'm not extrapolating or exaggerating. So th this next paragraph. What about those who do consider themselves Americans? By and large, I'm referring to the 75 million people who voted in the last election against the senile figurehead of a party that stands for mob violence, ruthless censorship, and racial grievances, not to mention bureaucratic despotism. Regardless of Trump's obvious flaws, which he doesn't uh, go into, per uh, preferring his reelection was not a difficult choice for these voters. In fact, leaving aside the Republican never Trumpers and some squeamish centrists, it was not a difficult choice for either side. Both right and left know where they stand today, and it is not together, not anymore. So basically what he's saying is that the only real Americans are people who voted for Donald Trump. And if you did not vote for Donald Trump, if you voted for Joe Biden, then you are not in any real sense an American at all. So yeah, Tom there's, Nichols, a lot. there's a lot to unpack there. But what's interesting is that he goes on to say that, you know, conservatism is dead. We need to be counter-revolutionary. The Constitution no longer works. And we need to go back to some sort of the ancient principles of America, which seems to be the agrarian thing. But you know, what, what's happening here? Well, there's, so, there's just so much <laughs> yeah. neurotic weirdness to unpack in this. And there, there, um, I'll add another piece to it, um, that, that another little snippet from there in a moment. One thing that's going on is this is now the heroic narrative, right? Mm. This is the, we are the last, you know, we are the last, um, defenders of right and the constitution as it was once understood because you know, he says, well, these people are not Americans. And then in the next sentence says the constitution no longer works. Well, you know, fidelity to the constitution and to the rule of law are, are really the only things that make us Americans. When you say, Charlie, you mentioned, you know, he's going back to some ancient American idea. He, he's not even doing that. This is just blood and soil nonsense. This is, <laughs> I, maybe I can lighten this m moment and say, um, you remember Gregory Peck as Mengele in The Boys from Brazil? Oh, this very over the top, you know, Bobby, or, you know, your children will rule, you know. Um, I, I find this whole essay worked better if you read it in that voice as Gregory Peck. Um, and to give you an example, this is another paragraph. This was pulled out by our um, friend of the bulwark, Christian Vanderbrook, um, who said, uh, notice there's this one. If you, this is, this is El, um, what's Elmer's writing. If yeah. you are a zombie or a human rodent who wants a shadow life of timid conformity, then put away this essay and go memorize the poetry of Amanda Gorman. <laughs> Real men and women who love honor and beauty keep reading. Um, you know, oh, man. rodents. I mean, 
come come on. Uh, I mean, you know, talk about sounding better in the original German. Well, okay, so um, yeah, I, I, I struggle against going there, but but I, 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 that's yeah. exactly where I came. I, I finished reading that and I went, you know what? It's like the guys saying in private, we all realize that we have to be fascists and let's like stop, stop screwing around with this whole constitution, democracy, America stuff. You know, um, it, it, it is the heroic, uh, real Americans versus the fake Americans and the rodents. I mean, it's just, if it the zombies, the rodent humans, the, I mean, you know, the, and this is fascist. too much. Yeah. I, I, I always, um, for a lot of reasons, including historic, historical accuracy, I, I don't like the Nazi comparison, but there, right. this is blood and soil fascist nonsense. And it is the, it is, it, but it's interesting. And I think we need to think about this for a moment because of what the Republicans and, or, or conservatives or whatever these guys call themselves now about why this is when you had, when you had the rise of totalitarianism, in the Soviet Union and Germany. It was in the wake of a gigantic military defeat, hyperinflation, um, massive dislocation between the um, people who have moved from the countries into the factories of the cities. I mean, you had this gigantic social and political and military uh, dislocation that had happened. And, you know, people were unmoored and scared and angry um, we're getting the same thing in America because why? Because somebody, because this guy thinks Jake Tapper doesn't like him because, you know, Hollywood and Netflix are too liberal because, you know, the president, the last president was half black before Trump. I mean, this is, this is a, a fascist inclination. Like, I don't even want to call it fascism. It's, um, you know, to take a movie line from another movie, um, you know, national socialism was an ethos. Um, these guys aren't even nearly coherent enough to to be, you know, that kind of ideological fascist. But it's a kind of reactionary or reflexive fascism that basically is rooted in saying, I, I just don't like the culture because it doesn't love me enough. Well, you're, you're right. I mean, I, I kept reading to figure out, OK, so what, do you, what are you proposing? What What is your vision? So just stepping back from, from you know, fascism here, you know, clearly the, the rhetoric is is the rhetoric of a civil war, which is that we're no longer one America. These people are not fellow Americans. We don't have anything in common. And the lament appears to be that we uh, yes, we are divided, but we're not divided enough that we need to make this tribal divide that, much, much to, more to interrupt. But to say and added to that. We are not we are we are not America. We are not both Americans. And we'll, half of us are not even human beings. Well, they're getting to that. And of course, and then this description of of the Democrats. And by the way, I would love to spend a whole podcast talking about, you know, where I disagree with the Democrats, the amount of money they're spending and everything. But this is interesting. The way that he describes it is that the the Democrats are a party that, quote, stands for mob violence <clears throat> like January 6th never happened. Mob violence, Projection. ruthless censorship and racial grievances, not to mention bureaucratic despotism. Well, you know, uh, you, you can this this again is if you portray the other side as being this way, you're going to get to this. Now, we just called him a fascist. Well, he is. But um, the Democratic Party, are they really for mob violence? I mean, this is OK. January 6th was literally mob violence, ruthless censorship. Um, turn around and look at what all the things that uh, the uh, the right wants to to censor racial grievances. Now, by the way, have you noticed the the degree to which conservatives are invested in denying any 
allegations of racism, racial prejudice, white nationalism. I mean, it is really extraordinary the degree to which they have internalized the anti-anti-racist rhetoric. I mean, I, I think there are people who go too far. I think there are mm-hmm. people who try to shove everything into the box of white supremacy. I was on a Sirius XM radio show yesterday, and we were talking about the need for voting reform with Dan Abrams, who has a great show. And a caller called in and basically said, you know, you guys are, you, you guys, you know, are missing the point because you, you, you shouldn't talk about this without using the word racism in every sentence. And Abrams <laughs> pushed back on him that, okay, look, we're talking about voting rights. We're talking about the civil rights movement, but you want every, you want us to use this term in, you know, in every single context. And I understand that people push back, but from Tucker Carlson to other publications, the, the, the denial that there's any racial problem or any history that we have not solved of racial injustice, I mean, is really becoming aggressive. I can't remember the last time that that the the right became so overtly invested in saying there's no problem, you know, look at you trying to make it a big deal about anti-Asian hate. You know, it's like, this is your narrative. Well, well, wait, guys, these are real things, right? But this is, again, it's the bunker mentality of if we give an inch <clears throat> on on racism, well, there's two things going on. One is, is if we give an inch on racism, um, then, you know, we have to admit that we are increasingly a minority in this country. Um, physically, we, you know, older white males that make up the bulk of this movement, um, but also that we are a political minority and probably ought to be. Um, because of, you know, our, our dedication to minority rule. I mean, there is, we've, we've used fascist. I mean, let's bring in the other word. Um, this is almost like an apartheid approach to politics to say, we don't, you know, our goal is to make sure that um, enough states are governed by minority vote in enough times to control the electoral college and the Senate. But the other thing that's going on, and this is where I think we have to, we do have to talk about the left for a minute is to say, this is also a reaction to a left that has become monomaniacal, as you point out, about race being about um, everything. And I'll give everything. you a small um, example. And I, I was, um, we were talking about um, this um, Van Halen versus Van Hagar debate that I wandered into because there is no stupid music debate that I won't make worse by saying something. And um, someone, I said something about, well, you know, the old Van Halen was very MTV friendly. That's why, you know, the people who like that incarnation right. and someone popped into my timeline to say, and what a racist network it was. And I thought, you know, it's okay for 10 minutes a day for something to not be a, about a, a kind of demonstrative or performative denunciation of racism. And I think this on this, the, the whacked out right and the monomaniacal left, have become symbiotic on this question. I think, you know, decent and intelligent people understand there is a serious race problem in the United States, and it is seriously manifested um, in the way Republicans are trying to hijack voting to suppress and eliminate um, votes from people of color. But to make everything about race and then to encourage, you know, I won't even say encourage, then to create the space for these guys, for the Tucker Carlson's of the world to say nothing is about race, um, creates a nice, easy black, white, you know, let's say red, blue team, a team B dichotomy where you simply cannot ever admit any nuance, uh, or, or any space for 
negotiation or discussion because then you're consorting with the enemy. And this plays especially well into this MAGA right, you know, which is we are the oppressed. We are the new oppressed. You know, these these guys believe. And it's it's insane, but it's also projection. Yeah, I mean, th- this has become, you're, you're right, but both of those things is insane and it is projection. I mean, the the playing of the victim card by the right has become so common. That it's almost like the, the air that we breathe. But you, you go back to the 1992, I actually wrote a book called A Nation of Victims. And if you would have said then, you know, uh, American conservatives are going to decide that they want to be the victims and play the victim card all the time. I would have thought, really, seriously? I, well, I remember I remember that book and I remember thinking, Part of the reason that I was so attracted, you know, in the 80s to American conservatism is um, we were not the party of, um, you know, constant um, victimhood and and moral equivocation and, um, you know, special pleading and all of the other things that, you know, I mean, we had our own, we had different problems in the 80s. Perhaps we were the, I always say that the biggest, I, I think the biggest mistake is that Again, something you would never believe about today's Republican Party, but that we were too, we were all head and no heart. I have a weird that we were overly intellectualized about, well, you know, the poor suffering. Well, that just happens. You know, well, you're uh, right. Let's look at economic models. It was was a little bit harsh. So uh, there was one little element in that book. That's kind of a weird story. Should I even tell it? Okay, one little element where, uh, you know, I was citing that everybody in America could claim they're a victim. Everyone, including, um, you know, Clarence Thomas, who had just been confirmed to the Supreme Court when he had said, I am the victim of a high tech lynching. And so, you know, it was very powerful to see somebody on the right playing the victim card uh, in that particular way. So I did, you know, that was an indicate, an early indication that that conservatives might be willing to play the victim card. The reason it's a weird story is that one day I'm sitting at home after this book comes out and I get a call, you know, saying um, Justice Thomas is on the line and he called and he'd read the book and he wanted to say that he liked the book. And Hmm. I was like going... Do you remember that I actually called you out for playing the victim card? But I was I was young and, <laughs> and, and much more cowardly then, so I didn't do it. So you have a book coming out this I summer, do. our own worst enemy. So speaking of pets, I don't obviously you want to you know hold some of your fire, but this is about the internal attack on on democracy. Is that is that right? I mean, it's that it, that, it is, it, and around the world and in the United States, yes, that that we have become uh, that uh, the source of democratic decline because for years <clears throat> you could get a lot of people on the right and left say, yeah, democracy. We had a big wave of democracy in the early '90s, and now it seems to be receding. And the answers were always, well, it's because of globalization and economic anxiety and. Um, it's because of, um, you know, the culture changing so fast and multiculturalism and, you know, and I think try, I, I, in fact, I was actually blocked on the book for a while because I was trying to test all of those theories and, and searching for evidence that would actually make sense. And what I came to is, uh, 30 years of prosperity, no matter what, and of course, people bristle at that because they say, we're not a prosperous nation. We have a lot of income inequality, but inequality is not the same thing as poverty. It just means that it means there's a lot of, there's a gap between rich and poor. Um, but it does not mean we are a destitute nation. We, we have had a 30 years of peace, whether we want to call it that or not. We've outsourced 
um, in, you know, imperial policing to a, to a small army of volunteers. The average person lives their life without foreign affairs or military security impinging on them in any way, as it did in the 60s or 70s, to, to take one example. Um, and we live with an incredibly high sense of entitlement created by technological prowess. Um, and we've, I, I think in the end, that's we've become this kind of pampered, entitled, unserious culture that you know leads to the kind of things that we're talking about today, Charlie, where you know someone says, well, um, you know, uh, the you know, CNN or MSNBC has a bunch of hosts that don't like me. Therefore, I am oppressed. Um, you know, I am I am oppressed because um, you know I I I don't my guy doesn't win every election. I am oppressed uh, because you know there's there's uh, too many black females playing police captains on TV. Um, you know these that that the the level for considering whether you are oppressed has become so low merely to mean I am annoyed or inconvenienced um, that we are really tearing apart democracy. I mean, we, we, and it's not just here in the United States. I mean, um, you know, the, the rapidity with which people will say, well, democracy has failed, right? That the system has failed um, in a world where the system, you know, works remarkably well, um, I think has, you know, where multiple systems work remarkably well has become remarkable. And, you know, that I, the book's not about Trump. I mean, Trump, right. just like with the death of expertise, where, you know, it's like somebody said to me, oh, you must have known that the stupidest president ever uh. was coming. And I, I said, it, it wasn't about him. And this book isn't about him. This was about knowing that something like him could happen. Something like him, like Boris Johnson, like Narendra Modi, like Jair Bolsonaro. Um, you know, these things are happening and we're, we're inflicting them on ourselves. Um, I guess the tagline, you know, is um, who keeps electing these terrible people, ask the voters. Um, <laughs> so are we a decadent empire? I, I don't think we're an empire, but we are a decadent culture. And I think that that and I mean, again, post-industrial um, Western or Westernized cultures have become decadent. Um, because we, ex because we are entitled and we expect, I mean, the, the American, I went and looked up a, a couple of weird things when I was doing this, this book, the average American home has 2.3 televisions in it. The average American home, not like rich people. Um, and I kept trying to juxtapose this against what would you have considered rich in 1970? Somebody who has a TV in their bedroom. Remember when that became a thing? Like, oh, hey, that, they've got another TV that in their bedroom. Like, they have two color TVs. That was a huge deal. Oh yeah, I remember. Yeah, um, okay. they have air conditioning. Huge deal. Now, now most Americans are like, who, who, who lives without air conditioning? You know, this is madness. Um, well, you know, they have a late model car, um, we, which is which is which is smarter than the average teenager. Yeah. I, well, safer, safer, oh, smarter. These are amazing cars. I mean, these these uh, are amazing. Okay, so I have to ask you this, Tom. Though, I mean, I this this may seem to be trite, but why are our phones getting so much smarter and we are getting so much dumber? Well, but that's why because we are outsourcing thinking um, to uh, apps, and we're happy to do it. Um, you know why? I, I mean, this is the old. <laughs> 
now I'm going to sound like an old guy. You know, I finally had to memorize my wife's phone number because I never call it. Right. That oh, I just, I, I know, you, I know this. No, I, right? you just, <laughs> you tap the phone and say wife, you know, and, uh, beloved. Back in the day, we had to remember our combinations, <clears throat> our locker combinations. Otherwise you'd never get your shit. Right. right. I mean, well, opening my computer with my thumbprint, you know, or my opening my phone with my face, um, you know, are, I mean, these are conveniences that actually make us in some way less mentally agile. But I also think, and this, this links back to something I wrote about in Death of Expertise that I come back to in Our Own Worst Enemy. Um, we treat in information and political information like a giant luau or, or buffet. We don't eat balanced meals. We sort of walk around and we graze all the, all the junk food and then say, how, how is it that I am, you know, fat and diabetic and hyperglycemic when all I've been eating are chicken fingers and ice cream? That's um, good. Yeah. And, and, and the same problem is happening to us politically. I mean, talk to people. This goes back to what you were saying about Sidney Powell. You know, talk to people who say, well, I really understand. I understand the voting fraud problem. I am in the know. I am one of the initiate, you know, when in fact, you're an idiot. You don't know anything about this stuff. The same people who think they have mastered the voting fraud problem don't even understand. I had this, I had this argument with a friend of mine who's a pretty intelligent guy, but he was like, well, you know, a lot of statistical irregularities. And I said, you, you're an intelligent person. You understand that when Pennsylvania passes a law that says that the day of votes have to be counted first, it's going to create the perception of a blue shift later in the day. And that was the point. You understand that, right? And his answer was, mm, well, you know, Tom, you know, I've read stuff. Yeah, I've done my and research. You can't argue with that. You just no, can't you, argue you, with yeah. it. Or, or the people who say, well, that's your truth. Uh, I have my own truth. You know, it's, it is interesting. I, I, I hesitate to, to recommend this. I, I do recommend it actually. The, the next level podcast that we have at the Bulwark plus it's uh, it's behind the paywall, <clears> but yesterday's was extremely depressing <laughs> to say Sarah Longwell was talking about a focus group that she had done down in Georgia. And it will, it's, it, it's enough to make you stroke out or at least, you know, get, you know, much stronger alcohol. And one of my takeaways was, um, you know, the, this process is the, the process by which people, uh, see entertainment and news and politics as entertainment has really accelerated that a lot of the people, um, you know, don't, are not outraged, do not take it seriously because it's all a big show for them. It's just sort of mm -hmm. like their, their channel, you know, surfing through various and forms of entertainment. And, and there's, then there's Donald Trump and he's like, well, what's going to happen next in this? And this is pretty amazing. So, you know, while we're thinking that people ought to be absolutely horrified by the attempt to overthrow the government, uh, that's just one more episode in the Trump show. The other and point that's, she made that's the nature that's the nature of decadence, Charlie. That you know, when when you are an unserious culture, where you don't <clears throat> sit down and read the news and say, now what you know, what does the tax bill say? Um, what does immigration policy say? What you know, what is my tax rate? How um, you know, where do we stand on you know um, relations with our enemies in the world, and are we safe? And instead, it becomes um, you know which. You know, oh, is today the day that the cool guy with the trident and the funky helmet is going to be in the Coliseum? Because I'm definitely going to tune in for that. Because you don't know what's going to happen. The other point she made, because I want to be fair to this, is is the 
is the implications for American politics of the 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 death of local media that yes. that everything is nationalized. So for example, she's talking to people in Marjorie Taylor Greene's district and they pretty much don't know anything that's going on with her. They don't know they don't cover because the local media do, either doesn't exist or doesn't pay any attention. So all they know are the national narratives and and it's really not about substance a lot of these people go yeah marjorie taylor green you know when you tell them about some outrageous thing she's done said about you know jewish space lasers they go yeah that's pretty bad but ultimately that they go yeah i kind of like the fact that she speaks her mind or that she's <laughs> feisty or that you know she has ads where she has an ar-15 because that shows that she fights or whatever and you go that's where you 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 know jvl is now proposing that that rather than having uh, elections that we we just get uh, you know, put people's, you know, uh, the, the faces of the candidates up on the wall and then get a hundred capuchin monkeys and give them all, um, you know, cute monkeys and give and give them all darts and have them throw at the picture because um, how would that be worse than what we have now? And, you know, and so what, 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 whatever picture has the most monkey darts in, you know, that that person is is elected. Um, and he basically says, uh, in, in what way is, is is that is that not an improvement or at least equivalent to what we have now? But we have to add something to this. And this goes back to the decadence problem, which is, you know, when it's true, there this this collapse of local news and the collapse of having like a trusted local newsman who says, I'm I'm sad to have to tell you what, you know, Marjorie Taylor Greene did here today, folks, right. as one of your neighbors. But the other thing that's going on is when you tell people this stuff and they say, yeah, but I really like she speaks her mind. What they mean is I am basically unhappy. And this is this is something I talk about in the book. I'm basically unhappy. My life ha has not been fulfilled in the way I think I deserve. My sense of entitlement about the kind of exciting, interesting life I think I should have had has not panned out. So I'm going to vote for this person who not only is, makes life interesting and exciting, but she's pissing off other people to match the, the inherent sense of resentment I have. And now we're all miserable. And that makes me happy. I mean, there's a really a deeper issue here about resentment, about people. If you look at the people that went to the to the Capitol on January 6th, these are all people who are not, they're not bad off. These weren't, this wasn't some revolt of the poor and the dispossessed and the voiceless. These were middle class white people, you know, basically saying, my life didn't turn out to be as interesting as I wanted it to be. I was supposed to be a life coach and an actor. And, uh, you know, and a military hero and the star of my own action movie in my head. And none of that stuff turned out. So I'm going to go to the Capitol. I'm going to make everybody miserable. And that well, has become the driving force in democratic politics. On the flip side, though, if you if you have been told and you sincerely believe that the other side hates America is destroying every single thing that we value uh, that they, in fact, uh, you know, are, you know, the other, that they have stolen the election. And you think of yourself as somebody who loves America and who wants to protect your, your family. You can understand how those people would become radicalized and, and they have been fed a steady diet of all of this. If you believe that, the, you know, half of America are no longer really Americans then you're going to act it out in a way that you wouldn't have, say, 10, 15 years ago. Yeah, but the, I'm, I'm going to push back on this, Charlie, sure. and say that they are primed to believe it because they have this kind of itching sense 
of inferiority and resentment and they're and they were ready for that message this you know fox and tucker and the rest of them didn't take decent ordinary americans and turn them into lunatics these were people that were waiting for someone to tell them that it's okay to feel the way that they feel and the other problem and this goes back to the kind of culture we are is how utterly unserious they were you know the people who said i'm going to storm the capitol um, I, I I talked about this in a piece in the Atlantic about a month ago, where um, the 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 real the realtor who took the private jet, right? Yeah, she's like, I love it. It, this is it, life or death, life or death. And by the way, when I get back to Texas, remember I can sell the hell out of your house. Remember me, I'm your writ. And I'm like, who the hell this says I'm storming the Capitol, life or death? This is all the marbles. And then holds basically the equivalent of holding up your business card, saying, and remember, I can sell your house. Um, you know, these are people who we live in a culture of zero consequences. People are going in front of federal judges facing prison terms for sedition and saying, but I have a work related retreat in Mexico. I need to go to your honor. So can I get a few weeks? I mean, you know, we, I'm sorry, but this is not, you know, this is not somehow that these people have come to believe that America is being destroyed. These are people who want to believe America is being destroyed because America never loved them as much as they think it should have loved them. And it hasn't given them what they think they're entitled to. You know, I wonder if there's a connection here to the the, the popularity of post-apocalyptic movies, the the number of, of movies that we have where we as a form of entertainment, um, you know, imagine the world has been destroyed by either global climate change or nuclear weapons or a massive pandemic. And we have to start over, we have to survive and then start over again. It's become this kind of weird, you know, late stage civilization fantasy. What if everything was wiped out and we had to start over again? I, I kind of wonder whether there's some connection to this, that, that we live in the most interesting possible time. And yet people are so bored and kind of want to. I, I think it also, I think it also explains, I mean, that you're, you're, you're singing my song because I actually um, teach a course on this kind of apocalyptic pop culture stuff. And of course it peaks during the late cold war, right? When we're, when we assume that nuclear war is, uh, you know, around the corner, what you get afterwards is zombie or um, pandemic driven narratives, you know, even before the pandemic that wipe everything out. But the other form of movie that we should be looking at here is the obsession with comic books and superheroes. Oh, we're going to talk about the Snyder cut. We're going to get to it. No, no, no. I've never, I haven't seen it. So, but I'm, I I, I, I I think it's, I think it's just interesting that a a culture of adult, and I love, by the way, I mean, you know, I, I still watch the original Christopher Reeve Superman as comfort food. Um, Mm. But, Mm. but, you know, we've become a culture that is so juvenile and so bored and so obsessed with the notion of heroism that we f- we are middle-aged people, you know, and I think anybody over 35 is all pretty much middle-aged, but, you know, we are grown men and women who flock to the theaters to see, um, you know, superheroes, to watch glorified versions of comic books. Because again, I think we all believe that we are the heroes of our own movie. And that's why you end up, that's the kind of thinking that ends up having you running into the Senate, thumping your, you know, painting your face and thumping your chest and and pretending that you're um, Mel Gibson and Braveheart. Well, we can all have our own themes, you know, playing in our head, you know, the, the music, at least the, you know, the, 
we can't have our own laugh tracks, but we can have our own themes. Yeah, no, you're right. We and we we all have to create our own dramas, and you can do that so easily. That's that's the thing that there are so we many. We're a nation of drama queens. We really have become obsessed with drama. Well, and so what a shock that we end up with one of the ultimate drama queens as the uh, temporary president of the United States uh, last time. So next time we'll have you on. I want to talk about uh, what's uh, what's going on in in, in Washington. Because I got to tell you, I have this. I, I, I. If somebody, if a pollster called me today and said, "Do you approve or disapprove of Joe Biden?" I would say, "I approve." I, I really think that he's moving, you know, moving quickly, and and I'm still basking in the glow, the contrast, um, mm-hmm. you know, with his decency versus the the malignancy of, of of Donald Trump. But I do have this creeping concern: at what point are we going to see some of this bipartisan moderation? Is there some moment at which moderates, you know, the centrists? Who I think played a significant role in in the, in this election, where the centrists are, I don't know, thrown a bone. <laughs> Do you know what I'm saying? I mean, this is yeah. I'm, I mean, I'm, I, I'm, I'm not trying to be critical here, but no, I, I'm, I'm 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 getting the tenor. I'm getting that whole you know, if not now, then when vibe. We need to move as hard to the left as aggressively as possible without any compromise on issue after issue. And um, that many people in the Democratic Party believe that this is the moment for them to enact the Bernie Sanders agenda. And I kind of feel like, hey, those of us that were centrists that really wanted to get rid of Trumpism, we're happy that that happened. But I mean, we're still here. And I, I'm, there, there is a, there is a gap, isn't there, between Biden's rhetoric about this and some of the things we're actually seeing him do. Yeah, and I think I think that the gap, there's a gap here between policy and messaging as well. One yeah. is on policy, you know, elections have consequences. I, and I actually said this when Obama was president, when people say he's moving, he's doing, I said, look, you know, um, if you want your own Supreme Court justices, well, then you have to win elections. I mean, that you, you've, you know that over the years, um, my mantra is this is bad politics, but it is within the powers of the elected president. Uh, or the congressional majority, you know, as long as it's done according to the constitution, you, there's only so much whining you can do about it. And so I expect Joe Biden to govern like a Democrat. The Democrats won the election fair and square. They control both houses. They're going to pass things that you and I don't like. Um, and I think added to that, there is the problem that the Republicans have said, we're not going to compromise on anything. I mean, M- McConnell and the rest of them yeah, basically said, you know, sure, we dare you to reach out and be bipartisan so that we can pants you in front of your own voters again and make well, you look like idiots again. So to, to, to have a bipartisan compromise, you have to have a functional Republican Party. But the messaging problem, this is where I, I come over to agreeing with you. The, the thing that infuriates me about Democrats um, as, a, as political strategists is that they think that every election is the last election. Mm-hmm. They think, hey, we've won the we won the Senate. You know, you guys are one senator. You guys are one case of COVID or the flu or pneumonia away from majority leader Mitch McConnell again. And when you're out there saying, you know, as you pointed out, everything's about race and we have to enact the Bernie Sanders agenda and socialism isn't so bad. They're not listening to people like David Shore, who I think, you know, has is really intelligent about this, who says all the elections are national elections and that what AOC says in her D plus 55 district can in fact hurt Abigail Spanberger in her R plus two district or whatever it is, you know, that the Democrats being Democrats have zero message discipline. 
do not understand how small a minority the left in America really is and keep blowing up the chance for moving toward bipartisanship because they somehow think that the repudiation of Donald Trump was consequently an affirmation of the far left agenda of a minority of the Democratic Party. And that's, you know, Biden, I think, I, I, I too would say that I approve of him because I think he's actually navigating among three parties here, which is this completely obstructionist Republican Party, a more or less sensible Democratic Party, and a kind of, you know, left wing Democratic Party that just ha- has no political maturity and doesn't understand that they could all end up being in the minority in another 18 months again. And, and I'm not sure what he can do about that. I'm not sure what he can do about it. We'll find out uh, how he how he handles himself, what kind of discipline uh, we get from from Joe Biden at the press conference. Uh, you know, I, I, I snarked at the beginning that we know what uh, Ben Shapiro is going to say about it. Uh, yeah. My my, you know, impression of, of Biden is that he, he always, you know, it, that they, 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 they lower the bar, say he's going to come out. He's going to be completely senile and incoherent. And he comes out and he's, he's just fine. But. In the current media environment, all the Ben Shapiro's of the world needs are 10 seconds of video that you can take out of context. And you're going to get that 10 seconds, like that stupid thing yesterday where where he turns to one of his aides and says, you know, who do we turn it over to next? And somebody says, well, the reporters have to leave. There was nothing unusual about that at all. Uh, that was a completely – for anyone who has worked yeah. in Washington for more than 30 seconds – that was the completely normal end to a meeting. And, and yet on conservative media today, it's like, see, they were protecting him because he was becoming senile. He didn't know what yeah. he was talking about. And, you know, this, this is part of the problem of, 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 you know, moderation, centrist, bipartisanship. Any of the things we've been talking about is that is that when you have one side that refuses to engage in any sort of good faith debate, when right. none of it is going to be in good faith, how do you find a way to, to work past that. And I don't know the answer for that. This is why I don't argue about policy with my, my former comrades on the right, because that's none of it's a good faith discussion. No, it, it is and no longer good. It's just the policy stuff is just the wallpaper for something completely uh, different and, yeah. and, lot, lot and, darker. and vile, something, vile. something underlying it that, that is vile. Exactly. Tom Nichols, thank you so much for coming on and setting me straight on the Hero Cat story, which I put well, in. Well, Charlie, you know, if if there's going to be bipartisan unity, it's going to start with cat and dog people, and we can we can do this. But you got to <laughs> lay off Sarah Longwell, man. <laughs> you're, you're inundating her with dog pictures, and you're calling in the dog mobs on her. And you know, I gotta I gotta speak up for Sarah. Um, so you know. Th- Think positive thoughts about cats this, and we'll reach across a, the aisle. This is a new definition of victimization. So I tweet <laughs> dog pictures and tag her. Poor Sarah. Sarah Longwell is the Amazon of American politics. And you're <laughs> saying I need to lay off Sarah Longwell because on her Twitter stream, a picture of a puppy might show up. <laughs> and it is true. It's so true that anybody who knows Sarah knows how funny that really is to say that you have to lay off Sarah Long also. You know, she can defend herself. But, um, you yes, know, like I said, well, we will find pet unity before we get to political uh, unity in this country. We may, we may. Tom Nichols, thanks for joining me. I appreciate it very much. And thank you all for listening to today's Bulwark podcast. I'm Charlie Sykes. We will be back tomorrow and we'll do this all over again.